Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, and this podcast is brought to you by Quip, the electric toothbrush. I'll have more to say about Quip later on, but if you'd like to get a jump and a discount, go to getquip.com slash QA. Our guest today is the one and only Thomas Sowell, the economist, writer, all-around great guy. He means a lot to a lot of people including me. If you'd like a website that gives you almost all things soul, that is tsoul.com. His latest book is Discrimination and Disparities. Wait a minute, I can hear you say. Didn't that book come out last year? Yes, but there's a new edition, revised and expanded, holding it in my hand. I'm in New York, and Tom Soul's in California, I believe. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. I thought of something you said about your book, Basic Economics, which had several editions. You said, it and me are both getting bigger, but it is all muscle, you said. And <laughs> I, I see you've, you've added muscle to discrimination and disparities. Yes. Did you find you just simply had more you had to say? Yes, uh, and I, I there's two, two, two more chapters in this book than in the previous one. And one of them, I think, uh, which is the longest one in the book, is on the the, uh, the, the world of words. Yes. And words are so much a part of what goes on uh, around us, and it's, it's so de- deceiving in many ways. Uh, that, that it, it took quite a long chapter. Words like diversity. I think you begin with it. Yes. Uh, diversity is what used to be called uh, balkanization. Uh, but by calling it by a much nicer name, people seem to think that that uh, makes it more saleable as an idea. Yeah. Yeah, uh, one of the other words that, that I didn't get into in, in, into the into the book, which I, I see in the New York Times today, they're talking about segregation in the New York school system, and uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those slippery words. When I think of segregation, really, is when uh, some third party uh, sorts out two other people, two two or two other groups of people, uh, and in fact, what's happening in New York is simply 
that uh, uh, in, in, the, in the school, like Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, Brooklyn Tech, where uh, they have exams to get in, there are not, not nearly as many blacks in, in those uh, schools now as there were, say, uh, 20 or 30 years ago. And that's not segregation. That's simply the way things worked out when people took the exams. Mm. Yes, I, I was thinking about you and reading about Stuyvesant High in New York a few weeks ago, and there was a coincidence of events because uh, Jeff Hart, the English professor and the longtime senior editor here at National Review, died. And he went to Stuyvesant beginning in 1943, and he said most of the students were Jewish when he was there, and now most are Asian. And I read in the New York Times that 74% of next year's entering class is Asian. And there was a something of a hue and cry about this. I guess it's an old story, isn't it, Tom? It, it is. Uh, at one time, they, someone described uh, Stuyvesant as a, uh, a, a free, a, a, a free uh, not public school, what do they call those things? And a free elite school. Uh, yeah. Uh, Free prep and, school, you know, maybe? It, it yeah. Anybody who happened to pass the test. Uh, and uh, uh, at that particular time, uh, most of the people who passed that test were Jewish. Yeah. Tom, I was thinking about your choice of subject in your books. And it seems to me that you were very keen to correct widespread public misunderstandings. And that's how you choose your book subjects. Uh, the subjects, you don't mind my saying so, are not necessarily sexy, but you find a need to address them because there's so much public misunderstanding. Am I right about that? You are. And, and moreover, the misunderstandings uh, have social consequences. In, in some mm -hmm. cases, very large social consequences. Uh, often the, the left is doing things that they say will be help, helping the poor. And in many, if not most cases, they make the poor worse off along with everybody else. <laughs> Minimum wage laws are a classic example. That uh, they, they think that by uh, setting a minimum wage that the workers will then get more income and so on. And what, what amazes me is they almost never try to find out factually whether that is what happens. Uh, a study by the National Bureau of Economic Research, for example, uh, found that uh, after so some increases in minimum wages, that the people who worked in those occupations were making, a, if I remember the number correctly, something like $130 a month less than they were making before. Mm. Uh, because uh, at a higher uh, wage, people have, uh, labor becomes more expensive, and people hire fewer people, and even the ones who maintain, retain their jobs are, are hired for fewer hours. And so on net balance, uh, the people in, the, in those uh, categories are worse off than they were before the minimum wage was increased. Tom, you remind me, you said something very, very important to me in the 1980s. Um, Michael Dukakis and other people were going around talking about McJobs, you know, jobs at McDonald's and so on. And these were bad jobs. And sure, we were creating jobs, America was, but these were McJobs. And 
you were so helpful to me because you talked about the importance of these first rung jobs getting on the ladder and what that could lead and how important it was to have a job like that for your future. And it made perfect sense to me and I've never forgotten it. Well, you know, I, 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 I subsisted on those kinds of jobs uh, for quite a while when I left home at the age of 17 uh, with no high school diploma, uh, no skills, and very little experience. Uh, uh, I, I never disdained those jobs. And, and, in fact, most Americans start out at the bottom and work their way up over, over time as they get more experience and more skills and so forth. Yes. Uh, I, I'd like to um, read to, to our listeners the epigram you've chosen for your book, which comes from uh, Fernand Brodel, a French historian of the 20th century. Uh, and it is this, in no society have all regions and all parts of the population developed equally. And I wanted to tell you on this podcast, Tom, that I've always had a bit of trouble with this notion of equality and how to think about it. I think of that French motto, you know, the trio, liberty, equality, and fraternity. And I think about our own, um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And I know that word create, created is very important. Uh, but of course, people are unequal in, in the normal course of things and their interests and their talents and, and, and so on. So I must say, I've, my personally, I've always been uneasy with this concept of equality and what to think about it. I know I believe in equality under the law. Do you mind saying a few words about this, Tom? Not at all. In fact, uh, uh, one, thing, one of the things that is so frustrating to me is if you look at facts about actual capabilities, uh, you find there's never been anything resembling equality. I mean, you... you Anyone who watches basketball knows that the various racial groups in this country are not represented uh, uh, proportionally in basketball, nor are they represented proportionally in hockey. Uh, you know, and, and, and you can go all around the world and cite all kinds of examples, but the people on the other side never have to come up with even one example. If you challenge them, say, name me one place anywhere in the world at any time over any century uh, where there was free access to any endeavor and people were equally represented in that endeavor. Just one case. They never offered a, a one. Uh, and yet laws are passed to say that if there, there's a disproportionate number of people in this or that, that shows there's something wrong. And what that involves is not only a completely arbitrary assumption, but really another uh, implicit assumption, namely that, you, that the cause exists where you collected the statistics. In other words, if there are not enough women in Silicon Valley for, for, to suit you, that can only be because of what happened in Silicon Valley where you collected the statistics. Now, in point of fact, if you know that women are only something like 30% of all the people or less are receiving uh, engineering degrees, and that people are engineers in Silicon Valley, why in the world would you have expected men and women to be equally represented in Silicon Valley or even assume that the reason for the, 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 this disproportion is in Silicon Valley? Tom, that uh, this word diversity is, is double-edged. 
I mean, there are beautiful and positive senses of diversity and kind of nonsensical and bad ones. Can we say the same with the word equality, that there are positive senses and then kind of dumb ones? Oh, yes. In terms of the treatment of people. Sure. You want to treat people equally. Uh, But that's not the same as saying that you believe that as a factual matter, uh, the people are, in fact, capable uh, equally of doing things. I mean, we, we cannot all sing like Pavarotti. We cannot think like Einstein. And we certainly can't all uh, land a commercial airliner safely in the Hudson River like Sully Sullenberger. <laughs> yeah, so true. So true. Or write books like Thomas Sowell. I, um, I'd like to read uh, for our listeners the, f- the very first sentence of your book uh, in the new preface. The first edition of this book addressed the seemingly invincible fallacy that statistical disparities in socioeconomic outcomes imply either biased treatment of the less fortunate or genetic deficiencies in the less fortunate. I I love that sentence because it speaks to a double whammy, you know, two great errors. And, of course, this business of genetic deficiencies is an error as well that is still about in the world. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, fortunately, there's been some progress on that. Even Arthur Jensen, who by the uh, late 20th century was the leading exponent of the effects uh, of genetics on the uh, IQ, uh, repudiated the idea that there was some kind of racial, some kind of ceiling on, on the racial abilities of different people. Uh, and, and so he repudiated what was really the central theme of, of the early 20th century. Namely, that there were some uh, people who were not capable of anything be- beyond being essentially hewers of wood and, and drawers of water. And uh, Jensen said in the late 20th century, uh, uh, why are you surprised to see that there are black children with IQs of 115 and up? You know, that his, 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 his real argument has almost never been dealt with. The uh, article got it started. He asked, how much can we bo- boost IQ and scholastic performance. And his answer was, we can boost scholastic performance a lot, and we can't uh, uh, increase IQ as much. But he argued that uh, there were people uh, in, say, high school who were lacking in skills that they could easily have learned uh, if taught differently. So his whole thing was that uh, IQ did not uh, predestine educational outcomes. Well, Thomas Hall, I'd like to ask one more question before we go to our break, and it's on this issue of of IQ, and I wonder if discussions of IQ are useful, or are they always or usually a morass? Yeah, they are usually a morass. They don't have to be, Mm. Uh, but the the emotions that are riled up uh, are such that, uh, and, and moreover, the background assumptions are there that people are simply find it very hard to think think rationally on the subject. Yes, indeed. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking with Thomas Sowell, whose latest book is Discrimination and Disparities. I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. Back after this word from our sponsor, Quip. Let's talk brushing, tooth brushing. Our mothers told us to do it, and they were right. 
But it doesn't have to be a bore, and it must not be shoddy. Do it right and in style with Quip. This electric toothbrush was designed... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To make brushing simpler, more affordable, and yes, more enjoyable. You'll know it once you start. Here are some key points about Quip. It has sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle on your gums. People tend to brush too hard, and some electric toothbrushes are too abrasive. Quip has a built-in two-minute timer, which pulses every 30 seconds, reminding you to switch sides. This makes for a full and even clean. Most of us don't brush long enough or evenly enough. A multi-use cover mounts to your mirror and unmounts to slide over your bristles for on-the-go brushing. This helps declutter your sink or cabinet and makes traveling with an electric toothbrush easier. Quip does not require a clunky charger, and it runs for a full three months on one charge. Brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist-recommended schedule for just $5.00. That's every three months for just $5. Three out of four brushers use bristles that are old, worn out, and ineffective. We don't want to be one of those brushers. Finally, Quip is among the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association and has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Here's the way I look at it. We're going to brush our teeth come what may. At least twice a day. Three would be optimal. We might as well make the experience as good as possible. And, not to go all art critic on you, Quip looks good. That's a bonus. And they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com QA right now, you get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. You know I'm going to give this address again. That's getquip.com slash QA. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash QA. Put some buzz on your brush. And many thanks to Quip for sponsoring this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, speaking with Thomas Sowell, the author most recently of Discrimination and Disparities. Tom, you you really don't think very much of retirement for yourself. It just seems to me retirement is not for you. Well, uh, 
there are so many things that need to be said. And, <laughs> and, and some cases I, I write, sometimes I write a book because I'm inspired by something. And sometimes I write them because there is something that needs to be said and nobody else is saying them. Uh, and, uh, I, I guess I did a little bit of both for the, for this particular book. Yeah. Um, are you glad to be unencumbered by a syndicated column? Yes. And especially in, in this political age, I mean, I, I often think that we're, we're now in a time where if you're sane, that puts you outside the political mainstream. <laughs> I know. I, I've, I've thought about you in recent years and your freedom from your column and how you were looking forward to this freedom, especially in this age. And I wanted to ask you today whether you read a newspaper, whether you keep up with the news, because uh, you said this is something that made a deep impression on me. When I talked to you, I guess, in late 2016, you said, you know, it's not so much the column writing that I want to give up. It's the consumption of news that you have to do to write the columns. Oh, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I do not try to keep up with the news. I, I glance at the papers. Uh, when I'm watching television, usually I can get through the weather forecast. Uh, but very often I, I, I switch off to, you know, Sports Channel, or just turn the turn turn the TV off, and I said, and sometimes it's the news itself that makes me turn turn and turn it off. Tom, are you enjoying the great outdoors? Because I always thought that you were underrated as an environmentalist, a true kind of environmentalist. Oh, I I enjoy uh, being being out out photographing. Uh, unfortunately, I end up uh, as a result of continuing to write. Uh, being indoors more and more than I should be. Mm. Uh, Tom, one of the things you say in this book that makes such an impression on me is uh, you remind me of Bill Buckley, who used to talk about the difference between um, you know, what to think and how to think. And uh, he was terribly good at showing people how they might think, whether they agree, whether they reach the same conclusions as he did or not. And this is a favor that you do uh, for the reader. You don't, necess- you don't necessarily want to tell him what to think. You want to you help him think better and suggest ways to think, whatever, whatever outcomes he reaches. Uh, absolutely. And uh, when, I, when I was back when I was teaching, uh, it was some controversial issue, I would spend a great deal of time uh, searching the literature to find the strongest arguments I could on opposite sides. Mm-hmm. And then I would assign both of those sides to the uh, student. And my uh, uh, question when I put it on an exam was all, always to find out, had the students understood what those two sides were, not which one he happened to like. Mm. But th- that, that sounds of terribly old-fashioned today. Well, one of the sentences I love in your book is you say there you say there are not going to be policy solutions here, but we're going to explore how to think about these things, um, which is very valuable. Um, one of the things you bring up is the whole idea of unintended consequences, and unintended consequences are a real bugbear of life, aren't they? They are, and uh, I would say in, in, in recent times, the unintended consequences 
have uh, overwhelmed the intended consequences time and time again. Uh, I think you, if you go back uh, to, well, minimum wage laws are a classic example. Yeah. One of the other things I mentioned in the book are, are, are these crusades to stop employers from asking questions of uh, applicants about whether they've uh, been, uh, whether they have any kind of criminal record. The argument being, you see, that young black males have a disproportionate um, percentage with criminal records, and that this will this will give them more of a chance. Well, of course, it does not. It has the opposite effect. That when when employers are look looking at uh, young black males. Uh, they are more reluctant to hire hire any young black males than they would be otherwise. But there are some businesses where the nature of the business is such that they have to uh, do a criminal background check on everybody who applies. And, the, and factual studies have shown that those kinds of businesses hire more young black males than others because they don't have to guess anymore. <laughs> they check the background. <laughs> the majority of black, young black males have not been, do, do not have a criminal record, and they get hired. But but that uh, is still going on, despite the studies that have been done. That's a beautiful example. I mean, it's awful, but sort of beautiful at the same time. That, I wonder if we could spend a couple of minutes on immigration, Thomas Sowell. Uh, one of the striking sentences in your book is, there are no immigrants in general. In other words, you want to talk about specific immigrants. Um, that made an impression yes. on me. There are no immigrants in general. Well, yes. No, no. Like, like any other sets of people, they, they, they differ. And it's, I hate especially these analogies with the immigrants from, say, the 19th century who are coming over from Europe. And so, you know, they say things like, uh, you know, where most of us are descendants of immigrants and so on. Well, but, you know, the Irish immigrants uh, from Europe did not come over here waving the Union Jack and sing, singing uh, God Save the Queen. They were coming to America to become Americans. I think many of the, many of the people who are who trying to get, come to America, say from Mexico or other places, also are like that. But we have no way of knowing what the proportions are. We have no idea, way of knowing really anything about many of them. They, we know nothing about the ones who come in completely illegally. Uh, and, and once they're here, there's a whole apparatus here to try to keep them from becoming Americans. I mean, there are activists who don't want uh, kid, uh, Hispanic kids to learn, be taught in English. Now, if, if the parents of those kids are given the option almost like, like, like the parents of the previous uh, immigrants, they will opt almost always for the kid to be taught in English, knowing that he's going to be in an English-speaking country and he's going to have a better shot in life if he can speak English. But the activists, of course, want to keep him separated because otherwise their whole constituency will evaporate over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. Um Jumping to something else very important, Tom, you are in this sense, among others, a real conservative in my book, because when the times change and the fashions change, you don't, if you believe the facts are still with you. And as far as I'm concerned, you're the, one of the last of the red-hot free marketeers, because I, I hear a free market um, criticized and, and knocked from all corners these days. And you demonstrate 
time and time again in this book and others, the benefits that such a, such a way of life have for mankind. And I, I must say, I very much appreciate it. And uh, as I read this revised and expanded edition of your book, I smiled at this. And it sort of, it, if I may put it this way, and I think you'll understand, it buttressed me in my long-standing beliefs about the value of economic freedom. Yes, freedom freedom is greatly underrated, and I have a terrible feeling that those who are underrating it are never going to really understand its importance until they have contributed to its destruction. And of course, once you've lost your freedom, getting it back again is more than an ocean. This 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 siren call of protectionism uh, to pick one aspect of economics, it really never stops singing. It never stops calling, does it? You never quite triumph it's over it. It's, it's so seductive, you know, generation after generation. It, it's again one. It's one another one of those invincible fallacies, and a lot of the time this comes from just not thinking beyond the immediate. Uh, consequences, uh, and sometimes not even examining those very carefully. I mean, you, you, some years ago, uh, the, 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 they were worried about imported steel in the United States, and the, the imported steel was taking away part of the market, and so the, the administration, which I believe was the Republican administration at the time, put, the, put these tariffs on, and of course that saved jobs in the steel industry. But of course, that made every other product that was manufactured with steel more expensive, and that then lost jobs in many, many other industries. I think uh, in the auto auto industry in particular, I think, Tom. It may well, it may well have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, the, uh, the steel industry made, made more profits afterwards, but the other industries lost profits. The steel workers gained employment, but the other, other workers lost far more employment than was gained in the steel industry, just as the other companies lost more profits than were gained by the steel industry. So it, when, if you ever think beyond stage one, uh, it, it's clear that many of these things that sound so good uh, are, are not going to achieve what they uh, set out to do. Well, Tom Sowell, I thought of you the other day because I waded into a controversy, not not intentionally, uh, but this issue of D.C. statehood came up. And because I think some Democratic presidential candidates are espousing it. And I said that, in my view, uh, Washington was meant to be the federal city. And if if voting for president is just having representation in Congress, not voting for president, beg your pardon, that's that's the old thing. Uh, having representation in Congress is so important, you can you know move across the border to Virginia or Maryland, but D.C. is the federal city, and I got all these charges and and and, and heated comments having to do with race, and how it's just because poor Democrats live in D.C. Well, first of all, lots of different kind of people, kinds of people live in D.C. But second, if there are a bunch of rich Republicans, I couldn't care less. I think D.C. ought to be the federal city, period. Uh, it doesn't matter who, who lives there. But it just reminded me of something you've written about so specifically and eloquently for so long, that in America, race taints so many issues that really don't, ought not to have anything to do with race. 
That's that's true. And 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 and, and, the, and beyond that, they they promoting the idea that if you if other people have things that you don't have, that is a grievance on your part. Uh, and, and whether it's by race, by sex, by whatever, uh, you put. One of the things that's one one of the wonders of the world to me is how the the left uh, are pursuing all these wonderful sounding ideas, and it never seems to occur to them to check on the facts as to what is actually happening as they pursue those ideas. In other words, when they say they're putting the minimum wage in to so poor people can have higher incomes, it never seems to bother them to to, to ask, do, do they really get higher incomes? Or do they end up with lower incomes and no jobs? And I think on, on this as well, uh, I'm, I'm amazed that even some people who are thought of as conservative or libertarian or whatnot are seriously talking about a basic uh, uh, income to be supplied by the go- universal basic income where the government will guarantee you something regardless of whether you work or not. And there's no thought, well, what are the actual consequences going to be? Because we've already moved in that direction, and one of the consequences that I go into is something lengthened in, in the new edition is the utter degeneration morally of, on both sides of the Atlantic of societies that have gone that way. Uh, one small but I think revealing thing uh, is the uh, exchange buffet uh, chain of cafeterias that began in the 1880s and lasted for more than three quarters of a century. And the way, way they operated, you went in, you got, you got your food, and, you, and, and, and then when you finished, on your way out, you told the cashier how much you owed. Now, <laughs> that, 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 that lasted for 78 years. It collapsed like a house of cards in the 1960s. As all kinds of sense of moral standards and so on vanished, and people just would, didn't pay what they owed. I'm all... I'm, I'm, uh, uh, always disturbed as I hear on radio and elsewhere, uh, advertising for ways in which you don't have to pay the, the, the money that you owed, debt forgiveness, this or that. You know, and, it's uh, bad for a person's character, isn't it? It is, and, 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 and not just uh, in financial things, because it then becomes just a scramble to see who can grab what uh, and try to put the cost on somebody else. Yeah. Well, Thomas Sowell, I have two more questions for you, uh, both very different. The first has to do with you as a Californian. I think you started out in North Carolina, New York City. You've lived all over, taught all over, lectured all over. Um, But you're also a Californian, and you know the Bay Area very well. And there's so much to love about the Bay Area. It's arguably the most beautiful place in the United States. But I don't know if you've been in downtown San Francisco lately, Tom. The place has gone to pot uh, with vagrancy and filth, and it's just – it's astonishing. It's arguably America's most beautiful city, certainly when you look around at the natural things, but the human things are just terrible. And, 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 how, and, and how that should be allowed to happen is just bewildering to some of us. Well, it's bewildering to me, and uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't go – uh, around San, and heaven knows I don't go walking on the streets of San Francisco mm. uh, because, uh, as you say, the, the filth and uh, is, is unbelievable. 
I mean, back in the olden days, I mean, I remember the Bowery in New York, you know, Skid Row and all of that. And I used to yeah. walk up the Bowery when I was working and going to night school. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was nothing like as bad as it is in San Francisco and, and many parts of it where, where the homeless. The homeless have really become the mascots uh, of the left. And I often point out that the only group in society which has a zero crime rate are the homeless. And that's because whenever a homeless person commits a crime, they refer to him as a transient. Mm. Yeah. Well, uh, to Tom, you're, you're talking about your, your youth in New York. I doubt anybody covered as many miles as you on foot and I believe is on, bi- on bicycle. Quite possibly so. From Lower Manhattan uh, all the way on up. I remember the most desperate time of my life when I, I was out of work during the recession of 1949, and I was literally down to my last dollar. And I finally got a job on the Lower East Side. At the time, I was living on 142nd Street in Manhattan, and the job I had was uh, just south of the Brooklyn Bridge. And I realized that I, if I... Uh, took the subway, which is only a nickel in those days, both ways, I wouldn't be able to eat. And so I would, I, I would, I would walk one way to, mm. to, to the job. From, and uh, uh, 142nd Street is, of course, 142 streets uh, north of, of Houston Street. Uh, and then at Houston Street, there's probably another 30 blocks down to, to yes. where, where the, the little factory and so I had to walk that, and uh, it, it, it was it was it was it was, it was a, 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 something I'll never forget. Uh, and from that point on, I, I was quite frugal when I did have a job. Uh, so, so 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 much so that when I was in the Marine Corps, and I and, and the other guys in the barracks were spending money, and I think at one time I hesitated to spend a quarter for something or other, and fi- and finally did. And uh, one of my uh, uh, cronies there said, so, oh, Diamond Jim Sola spent a quarter. <laughs> well, um, you know, the, the the negative things is to say is that, that so-and-so is, is cheap, and the positive thing to say is so-and-so is thrifty. And I, I, I like to think of you as a good economist in all those senses. Oh, well, well, thank you. I want to wrap up here, and I'm going to remind our Listeners, that we're talking to Thomas Sowell, the author of Discrimination and Disparities. There are so many public misunderstandings to correct, so many. Do you have a little list of future books, things you need to get done, uh, things you need to get set straight? Oh, my gosh. I think, uh, I think for an 88-year-old man to do that would be somewhat presumptuous. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, but uh, I, I, I'm, I, I, I expect to die with my boots on. Yes. Yes. Here, here. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we've heard from Thomas Sowell. I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. Our producer is Scott Immergut. The sponsor is Quip. Tom, thanks a million and continued strength to your hands. Thank you. So long.
Ricochet. Join the conversation.